But if you're coming across those kind of things, you'll watch for a few minutes. How many? Raise your hand. That's good to know. Good to know. And the rest of you, just how many just love the word squatchy? That's a good word, squatchy. If you've watched that show, you've heard that word. Um, Bigfoot. So I am fascinated with Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot is incredibly interesting since I was a little kid. I used to love to read the books about Bigfoot, the documentaries about Bigfoot, all this kind of stuff. That being said, I do not believe in Bigfoot. I don't. I want to believe in Bigfoot. I wish there was a Bigfoot. I hope that there's a Bigfoot. But before I can believe that there's a Bigfoot, I'm going to have to see Bigfoot. Um, I've heard stories, a a buddy of mine is a hardcore believer, well, I I haven't seen him in a long time, so just be careful just because he's listening, what up buddy, did you want to talk, and he moved, it's not my fault, but um, anyway, it was a hardcore believer, and and he and another friend of mine who'd come out from North Carolina, the three of us went snowboarding, we went down to Mount Shasta, and we were coming up, and my friend from North Carolina had fallen asleep in the back of the car, and he's a, a, a military guy, Marine background. And so he was asleep, and me and my friend are sitting here in the front seat, and we're talking. And I don't remember how the conversation come up. We started talking about Bigfoot, and he starts telling these stories. And I'm, I'm realizing, like, wow, you're a for real believer. Like, there's no doubt in your mind, oh, yeah, man, Bigfoot's real. He's real. And so I'm quizzing him on all this stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm, not, I'm trying not to make fun of you. So um, ha- tell me why. And he, he's telling these stories back and forth. And, and, I, and I said, look, we've never even found a body. And, and all the photos are always blurry. When I was on Facebook before I killed my account, one of my favorite things to do was to go on the Bigfoot Facebook pages and make fun of Bigfoot on the Bigfoot Facebook pages because the arguments you would get into were hilarious. They were so much fun. They would post a photo, here's a Bigfoot, and I'd be like, oh, blurry, of course, because they all are, right? So I'm asking this guy, like, so why do you believe in Bigfoot, like, so much? You're so convinced. We've never even found a body. And he goes, well, we've come close. He said, there was a group of hunters once that were out hunting. He's telling me a story. He's dead serious, okay? Those of you believers, I, it's just a good story, so don't be offended by me. But he said, These, this group of hunters were out, and they came across a family of big feet. Plural, big feet. Um, they, they came across a whole family of big feet, and they sort of panicked, and one of the hunters raised his rifle and literally shot one of the big feet, and he dropped dead right there on the spot. And I'm like, Okay, so the body, where's the body? We can do some science, we can examine it. And he's like, no, seriously, when the one fell dead, the others sprung into action, grabbed the dead one, threw him up over their shoulders, and they all bolted. And at that moment, the guy we thought was asleep in the background, the old Marine guy, he goes, never leave a man down. (laughs) And we just started cracking up. (laughs) Yeah, I want to believe in Bigfoot. I think the woods would be so much cooler if there really was such a thing as Bigfoot. But for me, I got to see it before I'm going to believe it. Here we have a story about a man who's never seen Jesus and he believes. Well, maybe you don't go quite that far. Well, I don't know if that really applies. Jeff, I'm here on Wednesday nights for discipleship training. That's what we're here for. I'm already a believer in Jesus. And so now you're going into this, I have to see before I believe thing. I believe, okay, but maybe it still applies to you because sometimes maybe we believe, but sometimes we have to see before we really step out in faith on certain things. We might, might believe in Jesus, but maybe before we step out and follow him the way he's put on our heart, maybe we need to see how things play out. We need to see for sure, is this going to work out, what God has called us to. An example of this, um, I, in addition to Bigfoot, I love sharks. Shark Week, I still haven't watched all of them, so don't blow away any endings or anything for me, but I love Shark Week. 
Um, and you got to love Mexico. If you've ever spent any time in Mexico, it's just a fantastic place. If there's something you want to do here that's going to take a lot of time to get certified to do or cost a lot of money, do it in Mexico because it's cheaper and faster. And scuba diving is an example of this. In America, you have to go through classes and licensing and get trained and all this kind of stuff. In Mexico, they're like, ah, you'll be fine. You've got air. And so... So we're down in Mexico, and my wife and I are in this place, um, this was years ago before we had kids, and we're in Cancun, and there's a place where you can go on a cage dive, and there as you're cage diving, you're going to feed bull sharks and nurse sharks and all these different sharks, you're going to be feeding them these tuna steaks while you're in the cage. And I'm like, wow, that would be awesome, I would love to do that, Um, but uh, you probably got to be certified, and I'm like, nah, man, 60 bucks will take care of it. All right, I'm in, I paid my 60 bucks, and I... I go cage diving with sharks, no scuba, nothing, no, no training, nothing. The, and so you get out there and, and I got a little freaked out at the very beginning because I'm expecting like jaws with steel barred cages and all this kind of stuff. The cage that I got into was made out of plexiglass, the entire cage, um, which was probably fine. I mean, the sharks weren't small. They were about nine to 10 foot bull sharks and super aggressive, but I'm sure that's fine. The thing that made it weird, though, is you know how it is, like, if you're looking at, like, I don't know, your your shower door or glasses, whatever, you can see all the scratches and all the marks, but then something happens when it gets into water and all that stuff sort of disappears, and it's just crystal clear. You know what I'm talking about on things like that? So here's this plexiglass cage, and it's got all the marks, and you can kind of see it, but then when it goes down in the water, it sort of disappears. So you're in it. But you don't feel like you're in it. You know what I mean? And so there's photos of me going, oh, pulling up my feet as sharks go underneath and all this stuff. It's just really, really freaky. And so, so you're out on the deck, and then the cage is waiting for you to get in it. And it's about like a foot and a half to two feet off the edge of the dock there. And there's the sharks already swimming underneath. I mean, up the deck there, the sharks are already swimming around underneath. They've already been kind of baited in. And you've got to step out on this thing. And, and you know, like you know as soon as your foot touches it, it's going to start to spread apart, you know. And it's wet plexiglass, so you're nervous at that already. Like, I don't want to slip and fall in the water and all that. And so I'm standing there, and I'm really nervous. And the whole thing is supported by one cable. That's what lifts it up, puts it in the water, takes it back out, all that. Just one steel braided cable. And that's what I got to get in. And so this is what I did, no joke. Before we got in there, before they put the cage out there for you to get in, I inspected the cage. So I'm looking around the cage. All right, let me check. Well, this looks good. That seems to be up to, up to code. And I'm, look, I'm like looking at the cable. I'm like grabbing it and yanking at the cable. You know what I mean? Making sure it's safe. Now, just ask me how much I know about steel cables that should be pulling cages in and out of the water. Go ahead and ask me. I know nothing about steel cables. I know nothing about plexiglass. I know nothing about any of that kind of stuff. I was like the guy who goes to buy a car and you just kick the tires and you're like, yeah, it looks good. You know I mean? I had no idea, but I I had to look like there was no way I was just going to jump in there. I had to, with my own eyes and my own feeble understanding, look and see, this is what I'm going to do. Is this safe? And make a sort of assessment for myself before I could get into water. Because for a lot of us, seeing is believing, right? we got to see it before we're going to step out there like that. Well, this story seems to fly in the face of that. This story is about a man named Blind Bartimaeus, who is upheld as having some of the, one of the greatest examples of faith in the entire Bible. But for him, seeing is definitely not believing. In fact, 
The thing that makes his faith so amazing is that he believes having not seen. The story tells us that blind Bartimaeus was a man in a city called Jericho, which is a crossroads, trade city. Now that's a really good place for a beggar to be. Jericho is just below Jerusalem, about 18 miles outside of the city. It was a common stopping point for anyone making their way to and from uh, Israel, or to and from Jerusalem. In fact, um, the Levitical priest who would work at the temple in Jerusalem on shifts would always come to Jericho, set up camp, wait for their turn to start, and then move up. So it was kind of a natural stopping place before moving into the city of Jerusalem. And it was a bustling city. It was, a be- it was referred to in some places as the city of roses. It was wealthy, a lot of trade, a lot of people passing through. And so just like you might see beggars on the sides of roads around here, you don't see a lot of people stopping and begging like down here at the end of our cul-de-sac. They want to go to intersections where a lot of traffic is coming by, maybe even near shopping areas where people have change or have money in their pocket because that's just a good setting for them to be in. Well, that's Jericho. This is a great place for a man like this to be. In fact, historians tell us that beggars were given special cloaks, special coats to be able to wear that denoted that they were, if you will, legal beggars, that they were begging for a legitimate reason. They weren't just taking advantage of the system, but there was a significant issue that caused them um, either to be ostracized from family or a handicap or something like that that said they're not just some guy that's like what we all worry about. Like you're going to give the guy a dollar at the corner and then he's going to go hop in his Corvette around the corner and drive off. So they had even certain robes that they would give the beggars that kind of marked them as It's almost like a beggar permit, if you will. And so here's Bartimaeus. He's sitting there by the gates. He's sitting there in Jericho. He's collecting his money as it comes down. And they would tell us even that the beggars would sit on the ground in their robe. They would lay out on the ground even in front of them. And that would be the thing that catches a lot of the money. Because, you know, people didn't want to come and have contact with beggars. They didn't want to have any kind of actual touch with them or anything. So a lot of times they would even set their cloak on the ground so the money could just kind of drop there as they're going by. So it's a good place to be a beggar, but we shouldn't take that too far to think that it means it was good to be a beggar, obviously. I mean, that was not a good thing to be. As you guys know, beggars, or excuse me, blind men in general, we learn from other stories in the scripture, were viewed upon as being sinners to a completely different degree than others. I mean, we we see examples where the religious leaders in the area are trying to quiz Jesus and his disciples about a blind man. And they say about him, who sinned, him or his parents? Because the understanding is, if you have some sort of condition, if you have a disability or a handicap or something like that, they believe that is God's judgment on you for your sin or the sin of your parents from before. And so in a society where people like lepers and those are considered sinners and are completely shunned, even pushed outside the camps, sometimes the gates of the city altogether, um, that carries a lot of connotations. I mean, first of all, it, it, it just makes sense that it would be hard to be a beggar or it would be difficult to be blind in this day and age, right? No braille, no dogs to walk you around, no beeping noises at crosswalks, none of that kind of stuff. Add to that the fact that now you're viewed by society as being an unrepentant sinner. You, you are comp- you're, you're in that situation because you deserve to be in that situation. And so just think how some of us, even our own attitudes, can be affected with regards to people that we see begging in our own society. Well, they're probably there because they made bad choices. 
And if they really wanted a way out of this, they'd be able to find a way out. They could find work. They could go to. And so for a lot of people, they're not going to reach out to those that are in, that in those situations because they believe that they're there because they deserve to be. Well, how much more so here? Now, think of it this way. If you're a beggar and they say that you're blind, or not a beggar, excuse me, you're a blind man, and they say to you, your blindness is a result of your sin or the sins of your parents, and your blindness is continuing, it's not getting any better, and you live in a society where people really look down on you and shun you for sin, what do you think the temptation for some parents might be for a child or for even a young adult who's blind? In many cases, they might want to actually distance themselves from their own children as a result of the, the, the issues that they would face with regards to society around them because it makes them look bad. So if they shun the, the person, look, it's their sin. It's not ours, and we've tried, and they're really just holding us down anyway. I mean, there were major implications, and, and it stands to reason that that could very well be the case here because the very fact that he's a beggar means that he doesn't have family taking care of him. No one's looking out for him. He's completely on his own. Um, and then that even has implications to one's spiritual life because that means he can't go into synagogue and participate in church, if you will, the way the rest of the people can. He's not going to learn about the Messiah or God or anyone else reading the scriptures, right? Obviously, there's no Braille scrolls. So he's only going to be able to learn through synagogue, yet he can't really go into synagogue because he's going to get shunned and judged and kicked to the back of the curb if he goes there. So a guy in this situation is really in a tough predicament. He's forced to begging to make a living, but for his spiritual sake, I mean, he's just going to have to put together bits and pieces from what he's learned from other people, learn the best he can whenever he can get maybe to the outside or the window or the back, back, back row of synagogue at best. He's in a really difficult position. Good place to beg bad place for a person to be. And this is where he is, sitting by the roadside. But it says in verse 47, then he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, our own language tends to disguise this a little bit, but this is what he's saying. He's demonstrating an understanding and a belief that Jesus Christ is not just son of David in terms of lineage, but king and messiah the one that Israel has been waiting on all along. How he came to this understanding, we have no idea. But this is a massive statement of faith. He's saying something about Jesus that very, very, very few people in the Gospels ever say about him. In fact, usually when he's referred to as the son of David or the son of man in other places, it's usually Jesus talking about himself instead of other people making that claim of understanding about who Jesus is. And he's saying, the Messiah. Now, what were they expecting for the Messiah? Remember Isaiah 61? That he's going to come to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to free the brokenhearted. I mean, excuse me, heal the brokenhearted. He's going to free the captive. And so there's a lot of connotations that come in with that, right? And so here's this guy. This is the one who can save me. This is the one that can heal me. This is the one that can set me free and restore me. This is the Messiah. And he just starts calling out. Now, imagine it. Crowded roadside, people everywhere, really kind of bustling city. We're coming up on Passover. 
So there's going to be a whole lot of people kind of gathering together and making their way into Jerusalem. In fact, the very next story that Mark's going to give us is going to be the triumphal entry as Jesus is making his way into the city of Jerusalem for, so, for Passover. So this city right now is packed as people are making their way into Jerusalem. A lot of noise. And then add to that, Jesus is traveling with, as it says, a great crowd. There's a lot of people coming with him. And so this man starts shouting out, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David, have mercy on me. But people rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Now, that's amazing considering the fact that what was the last thing, we looked at it just last week, that Jesus was teaching. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you're to be a servant to all. This idea that it's the least of these that Jesus came to save and to serve, and that we're not below anyone. And yet, here's a beggar right away, side of the road. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up. Somebody shut him up. We don't have time for you. You're a nobody beggar. Please, bigger names on the other line. We're just going to keep on cruising through. But it says it didn't work. They rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And he said, call him. And they called the blind man, and this is great, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. This is so fun. Like at first, they're like, shut up, somebody shut him, stupid beggar, shut up, shut up. Hey, bring him to me. Oh, little buddy, come here. (laughs) Guess what? Jesus wants to see you. Sorry about that kick. We thought you were somebody else. But he wants to see. It's so stinking ridiculous, but that's who we are. Verse 15. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. And came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And this guy's got some pretty tremendous faith right here. As soon as he calls him, as soon as Jesus says, come here, boom, he's up on his feet. He's throwing the cloak off to the side. He's coming to Jesus right away. Jesus says to him, what do you you want me to do? Oh, rabbi, master, that I could recover my sight. And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you whole, and instantly he's healed. No more begging, no more ostracizing, none of those things. I mean, imagine, just healed. No spitting in the mud, no none of that stuff that we've seen before, just healed. And the first thing he sees is he's staring right in the face of Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. It's an amazing story. Now this is considered one of the greatest acts of faith in the gospel accounts. And it would be easy to just go, well, how is this one any different than some of the other healings that we see here? What is it about this one that sets it apart? But there's something very significant that happens here. First of all, This beggar has incredible assurance in Jesus' ability to heal him. So much so that, remember I told you about this garment that was, if you will, their uniform. That was the robe that allows them to legally beg in that place. It was also the garment that they would lay on the ground to be able to collect the money when it came. It was the clothing that they wrapped tight around them to keep them warm at night. I mean, that garment was really important. In fact, historians tell us that beggars would never let that garment go, especially if you were blind, never more than arm's length away, because if they lost that, they're done. I mean, their whole livelihood is attached to this thing. So for it to be anywhere out of reach where he can find it, if you've ever seen Scooby-Doo, remember she always loses her glasses, and she's scrambling around everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? 
just us, I guess. No one else saw that. But, but that happens in every one of them, right? And so this is the situation here. If his robe is gone, he is in big, big trouble. And so yet, here he is. He gets up and he's so, he has so much confidence that Jesus is going to be able to heal him. It says he throws his robe aside. He completely disrobes it. Like, yeah, I, I don't need this anymore. Throws it aside and springs to see Jesus. He has amazing confidence in Jesus' ability. He's heard the stories. He knows he can heal my sight. But even more than that, even more than the, the assurance in Jesus' power, he has total assurance in Jesus' identity. Because you see, he says here, Rabbi. That's, that's our translation. That's what we put there. But the actual word that's used there is a word called Rabboni. That's the original word in the language. Now, I believe that every single word that's in the Bible is there for a purpose. I do not believe that there is any wasted language anywhere in the scriptures, that every word will last. It's the very word of God breathed out. And every word in scripture, I believe, is bathed in wisdom. And this word in particular here, Rabboni, the word rabbi is used all over the place in Scripture, but Rabboni is only used one other time in all of the Bible. And I've already told you we were going to be going there. Turn to John chapter 20 real quick. The only other place that this word is used is in John chapter 20. There's a woman named Mary. Instead of outside the gates of Jericho, she ends up outside the tomb. And in John 20, verse 11, it says this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have laid them, laid him. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. So now Mary's the blind one in this story. Standing in front of her is Jesus Christ having risen from the grave. She doesn't see it, doesn't recognize it. She's in that blind position again. In verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now she's the beggar. Please tell me, where is he? Where is my master? I don't know where they've taken this body. Will you please tell me where he is? Verse 16, and Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The only other place in the scriptures is right here where Mary encounters the risen Jesus, doesn't know who he is at first, begging to find out where the body is, but the moment he says her name, the moment there's this personal call, her eyes are opened, and she realizes who she's talking about. Now, this word Rabboni, here in, in the ESV, which is what I'm using here, it says, means teacher, and that's kind of true. Um, it's kind of a complicated, and it was a very special and reserved word in the language at that time. It means, so it kind of means master, it kind of means teacher, it kind of means king, and it kind of means lord. And what I mean by kind of is, I mean, it's a combination of all of those ideas all wrapped up into one. 
It was a word that said, he is my master, my rabbi, my king, my teacher, my everything. And you would never use a word like that flippantly. The reason it only appears two times in scripture is because it was a word in that society that was so withheld, so reserved, it was considered almost blasphemy to use in that day and in that religious system for anyone below, if you will, in ranking the high priest of the nation at that time. Like you're not just the rabbi, you are the rabbi. And in many places they would say a word like that should only be reserved for Messiah. And so here's Mary who comes face to face with the risen king. And she says, Rabboni. And here, here's what's amazing. So, so we have blind Bartimaeus on the other side. Doesn't see, doesn't have the benefit of like Mary spending all of this time with him, learning him, seeing the miracles from himself. Doesn't get to go into the synagogue and study the scriptures for himself. I mean, he's at a major disadvantage, but he has a faith given from God, no doubt, to understand the reality of who he is. But there's, it's even more than that, that this idea of this word Rabboni carries one other little significant twist into the meaning that is so important. It doesn't just mean leader, king, ruler, rabbi. It means my leader, my king, my ruler, my rabbi. And so this man, in spite of how little he has available to him, has heard, has understood the spirit has awakened understanding in his heart and so when he comes before jesus and jesus says what can i do for you he says my master that i might receive my sight and jesus says then your faith has made you whole you knew who i am you understand who i am you have incredible understanding of my ability my power my identity and who i am it's an amazing story it's way more than just a blind man who wanted sight it's way more than Jesus just having pity on one guy. There were a lot of blind men that Jesus walked past, honestly, in his days on earth. But this is a man whose faith was incredibly strong in who Jesus is. Because you see, seeing isn't always believing. We know that from Scripture. Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that story? Lazarus, who's headed to hell, and he says, uh, just allow me to go back and, and appear before my sons so that they can see. And I'll be able to tell them that all this stuff is real and they'll be able to follow. And, and Abraham there in the story says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. They're not going to believe if they see you. That's what he tells them. Doubting Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? I've seen the risen Lord. And he says, oh, well, it's actually in John chapter 22, verse 25. Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, that's disgusting, I will never believe. Thomas has got issues. I mean, <laughs> we're going to ask him about that. Couldn't you just see him, man? You had to, anyway, that's what he says. I, I, this, I need more than just words. I got, I got to see. Now, here's the beauty of it. While the Bible does encourage us like that, 2 Corinthians 5, we saw this weekend, we walk by faith and not by sight. There's an understanding that the Bible is not like afraid of our inquisitions. The Bible will stand up to any depth of study or inquiry. I mean, the Bible has withstood attack after attack after attack after attack for, for well, I mean, since it was written. And it has always withstood that. So, so it's not that we're not allowed to dig or that, man, don't dig too deep because you might discover something that doesn't work out. And the Bible is absolutely true. And Jesus, even in this story with Thomas, when he's like, nope, I got to see it. I got to see it. Well, Jesus comes and he, he shows him. 
If anyone's seeking with an honest heart, saying they desire truth, God will show. He'll reveal himself, and the scriptures will do the same thing. But Jesus answered Thomas afterwards, and he said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And the Bible calls us to faith, not just in the things we see, but there does come a time. It's not a blind faith. Because you can study the scriptures and the the scriptures will bear themselves out. They will stand up to our inquisitions, no doubt about it. And there is a ton of evidence, for example. If it's just the, well, we're believing in myths. They're not myths. They're not myths. And you can study it. You will see they are not myths. But there's a time, too, to just go, I trust and I obey. I believe. I will have faith that you are God, that you are able, that you are powerful in who you are. I trust and I believe, and to understand, and to not take so much stock in having to see and understand, but to just be able to believe in who he is and in what he's called us to. And in closing, two things. There's one exception. There's one exception that's really important. Well, two, I guess I would say, really. Two areas where sight is required, though. And we see them from this story. The first is this. In this story of blind Bartimaeus, he may not be able to see physically, but he was absolutely aware of his need. He understood. He didn't need eyes to see that he needed eyes. I don't know if that's grammatically accurate, but you know what I'm saying? He didn't need, he understood his need absolutely. And so for us as disciples, what can we learn from that? Well, let me just ask you, are, are you aware of your need? Are we aware of our need for Jesus? And I don't mean just, we, need, we have a miracle or a healing we need or, you know, something like that. I'm talking about just in general, our own sin, our own need for a Savior to atone for our weaknesses and our failures. Or have we got to a point where we feel like we're beyond some of that kind of stuff? Uh, we, we don't need necessarily him. I, I would say, man, watch out if you're in a place. If you're in a place where people can't point out sin in your life and you can humbly go to God with those things and be able to to look at that. If you're in a place where you're reading the scriptures and you never come away convicted, you never feel that there are areas in your life that God is pointing out and working on, maybe you're blind. Maybe you're the blind one in that story. But the second thing is this, not only to see what our needs are, but to see Jesus Christ as the all-encompassing answer to every single need that we may have. Because when he's throwing that cloak aside, he's not just saying he's going to heal my need here. He's going to provide for me in every way. And it says, the story goes on to say that he went on to be a follower of Jesus. Even church historians talk about the fact that if it's the same guy, this guy played a large role in the early church in Jerusalem. He dedicated his entire life. He walked away from anything that he had. And he left Jericho and followed Jesus from that day on because he realized this is more than a good doctor. This is my king, my Lord, my Savior, my provider, my God, my everything. And so for us to be in a place as disciples, walking with Jesus, there's going to be times regularly where we are going to become more and more aware of our need. In fact, there was a lot of time, I think, earlier on in my walk with the Lord that I felt like I would get to a point where I'm not aware of my sinfulness anymore. Like I would get better. You know what I mean? Like it just, it would be so far behind me, it doesn't occur to me. That hasn't happened actually. What's happened is a lot of times, the more and more I walk with Jesus and the closer I get to Jesus, the more aware I am of my own weakness and my need for Jesus. And it's supposed to be that way. 
Because the closer we're coming to the one who is perfect, the more we're going to become aware of our own weaknesses. But, but it's not about just looking at them and just moping and going, oh, I'm such a loo, oh, I'll never. But to be able to turn our eyes to Jesus as the author and what? Finisher of our faith. He, man, you as a disciple will never, ever, ever get to a place where you don't need Jesus every second of every day. If you think that you're in a place where you don't need Jesus in any given moment, then you are blind to that need in that moment. May we learn from the example of our dear friend Bartimaeus. Amen? Will you guys stand with me? God, I pray that we would be completely dependent on you in every area of our lives, Lord. God, may we never get to a place where we feel like we have everything under control on our own, that we feel like we're walking in our own power, that we see things clearly ourselves, but Lord, may we see everything through the light of your gospel, the truth of your word. May your word be, Lord, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But God, may we be aware of our weaknesses and need, not so that we become a, a, a whiny, needy, mopey kind of people, but God, may we instead look to you and understand that you, Lord, you are our provider. You are our strength. You are our need. You are our source of knowledge. You are our source of protection. You are our salvation. You are the one who saved us. You are the one who sustains us. You are the one who died for us. You are the one who changes us, Lord. May we lean on you for everything. God, may we not have a heart of self-righteousness that's not aware of our own sinfulness. May we always be pliable. May your scripture always find fertile soil. Lord, may we be quick to recognize weakness and sin, but even quicker to turn to you, Lord, as the one who deals with it and has dealt with it once and for all. We're thankful for your gospel, Lord. And I pray, God, you would bless each of these people, Lord, as we go on our week. Will you bless our fellowship here, Lord? Will you bless our time together this evening? And will you bless our week, Lord, that we might walk closer with you this week than we did the week before? That we might trust and obey, and that we might walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So guys, the ice cream's gonna be out in back. And hey, do me a favor, especially those of you that have been around for a while, you know people here. Watch for people who don't know people here and are around. Introduce yourself and let's just have a great time of fellowship where everybody gets to know some people and stuff. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.